Welcome to the Anti-Architect Podcast. I am your host, Christian Giordano. As president and owner of the architecture and design firm Mancini Duffy, I am driven by a quest for learning and radically changing the architecture industry through tech-first innovation. With this podcast, I am hoping to improve the industry that I am so passionate about by taking a critical look at how architects work with their clients and in turn, how our clients view us. It is my goal to showcase all of these experiences, good and bad. Was it the architect or the client or somewhere in between? I aim to bring my audience new voices from around our industry, interesting people with diverse backgrounds. Through shared experiences, stories, and projects, my hope is that we can improve our profession. Hello, Anti-Architect Podcast listeners. I'm excited to have Chris Burke from Gardner and Theobald here today as my guest in studio on the Anti-Architect Podcast. Chris is a senior director at Gardner and Theobald. We'll, we'll probably refer to it as G&T and has been with them for 16 years. Founded in the UK in 1835, Gardner and Theobald provides independent pro- project and cost management services in nearly all sectors of real estate and construction. There are over 1,000 employees worldwide, and and they have a major presence in New York City. Chris leads a team mostly in the hospitality sector of project managers and cost management professionals who help facilitate the successful execution of projects for developers, landlords, tenants, and hotels. Chris has leveraged his background in civil engineering and construction management to advise and lead the development of large scale, several large scale complex projects, including the 85 acre Brooklyn Bridge Park, Little Island, formerly Pier 55, and the Woolworth Building conversion, the repositioning of 28 Liberty, and the renovation and repositioning of the iconic Carlisle Hotel, as well as many hotels around New York City, which is how I know Chris. Chris, thank you for agreeing to be on my podcast. You are one of the nicest guys in the industry, and it's a real pleasure to have you here. Thanks, Christian. Happy to be here. Awesome. Awesome. All right. So let's get right into it. I'm going to switch it up a bit. Great. Um, What annoys you about working with an architect? (laughs) (laughs) What annoys me about working with an architect? I mean, that's that's an interesting question. Um, I love architects, and I think uh, they provide a of invaluable service to the industry. But as with every consultant and contractor, there are certainly things that are, I, I find annoying. Um, <laughs> I think, uh, uh, you don't have to get too detailed with it. So. <laughs> <laughs> I think the, the perception or their, their perception of knowing costs, construction costs. I think um, that's a good one. The architects, many architects, will make statements like, um, "We know what things cost, or we design to budgets," and you know that's often not the case. Guilty, yeah, that's me for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Believe me, plenty of people here in the office call me on that all the time. So yeah, absolutely, I I'm couldn't sure. agree more. <laughs> Awesome. So our audience would love to get to know you better. You are originally from Eastport, Long Island, uh, but your family moved upstate to a small town called Ghent. 
right? That's right. Get New York. Uh, yeah. So why don't you tell us a little bit about kind of growing up and that kind of stuff? Sure. Yeah. As you mentioned, um, I was originally born on Long Island, uh, but we moved upstate when I was pretty young. And my father was a mill worker and he had a mill workshop in Quag, Long Island. Oh. He moved that business upstate, uh, and I believe it was 1990. And he ran that uh mill workshop upstate, mostly servicing his clients on the island uh, until maybe 1994 or 1995 when he closed it up. Um, he got tired of you know, running back and forth every week to, to New York City and to Long Island. So he started focusing more on the business um, in that upstate region. So he got into general construction, um, you know, house building, renovations, those types of things, which is where I started to get a lot of exposure myself to the construction industry. Now, I was always around his mill workshop and he was always doing drafting in our in his home office in our house. So I saw a lot of um of what goes into the construction industry through through my exposure with my father. And I worked with him on a number of projects, you know, through my um teenage years and even after I, I got into college. Did he keep the millwork going when he when you got to the to, to Ghent? He, or would, he it just did. became general construction. He did, yeah. For a few years, he ran it okay. um, in upstate, but you know there just wasn't the clientele in upstate New York for custom high-end millwork. So, I'm sure, yeah. Um, it slowly pivoted to more so when you were in Quag, you were doing or he was doing stuff like I would assume in the Hamptons and then in New York City. And, That's right. Okay. Yeah, you know, custom stairs, circular stairs, oh, kitchens, cool. cabinets, those types of things. Yeah. That's great. so. He's when you say he did his own drawings, he so he would design the things for the clients. He would do design he would do his own chop drawings oh cool and he would do that all by hand so you know a lot of a lot of, a lot of that drafting was done at home and he was uh he was, he was working in his home office so you got to see all of the you got to see that whole process and then work with him that's right yeah okay that's very right. cool what kind of projects did you work on uh with him i mean the the millwork shop was was closed by the time i was old enough to really um to really help i okay. spent plenty of days in the shop <laughs> growing up but um by the time i i was old enough to really work it was more on the general construction so we built houses and did renovations and, wow yeah that's great so that that kind of explains how you you know got into this uh this line of of the of your career so that's right yeah makes sense so tell me about your summers in maine and your boat <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so uh, when we were growing up, we used to we used to spend a month every year up in Booth Bay Harbor in Maine, and my brother and I, you know, we rented a house on the water, and we thought like, why do we have this house on the water and no boat? So we started pushing our parents, like we should get a boat. We need to get a boat, and I think the after the second or third year, we convinced them, and we we thought, okay, we're going to go and buy a boat. But my father's mentality was, you know, why would we buy a boat when we can build one? Cool. So, you know, at his drafting table, he designed a, an 18-foot um, skiff that we then went and uh, the three of us, my brother and I and my father, built uh, at, at home over the course of a month before we, before we brought it up there. Really? How do you know how to build a boat? <laughs> <laughs> Well, it seems different than I houses. didn't know how to build a boat, but yeah, I think his background in, in millwork, he's also a big, uh, he's always loved boats, loved sailing. We had sailboats growing up Okay. Um, when we lived on the island. That's awesome. So I think he, 
you know, leveraged that experience and designed this boat. Actually, we still have it. I, Do I still, you really? Yeah, it's been 30, almost 30 years. And, uh, and it still yeah, functions, no problem? Functions, it doesn't yeah. leak? <laughs> yeah, it's, we've had to do a little maintenance and renovation to it over, awesome. over the years. But yeah. Is it up in Maine? No, it's here. It's uh, oh, really? on, on the island. Yeah. Okay, nice. Yeah. That's great. Wow, so you actually get to go out on a boat that you, you built. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So tell me about your early kind of high school years and then work. I know you worked on a farm. Tell me a little bit about kind of all, because I think that leads into sort of this hands-on experience that you sure. have that then carries into your line of work. Yeah, yeah. So when we moved upstate, I, we fully embraced the, the <laughs> upstate farm, you know, outdoor life and... I worked on a farm starting at the age of 12, uh, one of our neighbor's farms, a big horse farm and, and uh, Angus cattle farm. And then as I got older, I worked for a logging company. I did land clearing, did excavation, um, <laughs> general construction, both with my father and with other contractors. And, you know, I would, would do anything from, you know, masonry work to framing to finish carpentry um electrical plumbing you name it so i had exposure through high school and even through my entire college career like with very hands-on uh in the field construction nice so can you still do all that kind of work today yeah nice yeah Good i still you. tackle the occasional project the projects yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's great I, i've never learned that stuff so but i've i've seen it enough and i always watched contractors in our house so yeah. i've picked up enough to you know be able to dabble in it I'm decent with plumbing. I'm okay with electrical. I'm really good at plastering. I've gotten really good at like, I have no fear of busting yeah. holes in walls. And then like, I can, I think I'm actually pretty darn good. So if you ever need me on a job site, I'm perfect. I'm good with that stuff. Yeah, that's the one, that's the one thing I stay away from. <laughs> I'm a good painter, but not a good plasterer. Okay. <laughs> that's hilarious. Um, so I like to ask this question of guests that have a, a design background, which you do is, mm -hmm. can you describe your childhood home in detail? Like if you think about it, yeah, we had a, I we had three different homes that I grew up in. Okay. Um, in Eastport, we lived in a old farmhouse style, eighteen um, hundreds home. Nice. So low ceilings, <laughs> small bedrooms, small rooms. Um, when we moved upstate, we were our first house we were in was in a uh, more of a brick ranch. So, okay. Um, you know, 1970s construction. Right. And then the house where my parents are in now um, was actually a third house on the same foundation. And that the house currently is, I think, 75 years old. So it's a, you know, old, old farmhouse. So your style. dad looks for projects. He looks and... for projects. That's right. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> uh, um, so where did you go to college and, and what is your degree in? I went to college uh, at the Rochester Institute of Technology, and okay. I have a bachelor's degree in civil engineering. Okay. And did you did you want to be an engineer? Is that kind of... <laughs> no. I would say I always knew that I would be in the construction industry. Okay. Uh, the, the, the decision for civil engineering was, was more of, I thought it would be a good background. It would be a good... Um, technical background to have to sort of advance my career in, in the construction. Never really had the desire to to you know actually be an actual civil engineer. Okay. Okay. Did you ever work as a as an actual civil engineer? I did. Yeah. I mean, I, I interned. We had a co op program at RIT, so I spent a full year. Um, okay. Working in civil engineering. 
uh, in Albany for a telecom and civil civil company. So I did a little bit of like site site planning, okay. Um, some you know for you know retail establishments, and then also um, some cell tower locations and cell tower site design. Okay. Did you actually do drawings and, and yeah. stuff like that in yeah. AutoCAD or I don't know what the yeah. civil package was back then <laughs> in, in AutoCAD? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. And I worked remotely um, before remotely was even a, a thing. When I went back to college, they would still send me stuff to, to oh, work really? on when I was at college. Yeah, like hand drawings or on computer on CAD. We okay. would we, we FedExed or mailed CDs <laughs> back and forth to each other. That's great. <laughs> so they like they liked you obviously having yes. having you work there. Okay, that's, right. yeah. that's awesome. So what ultimately makes you move to New York City? Um, yeah, that's a. Uh, it's a little complicated. When I, when I was getting close to wrapping up my engineering degree, um, I was trying to figure out my path, what the next step was. And I had gotten an idea in my head that I might go to law school. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I had worked in the, in the construction trades. I had, you know, I had my experience in, in the civil engineering and I was sort of looking for, you know, another aspect of the, of the business. So I was thinking sort of construction contract law, um, so I'd taken my LSATs and started looking at law schools, um, but I thought I should do a little bit more due diligence on this before I make the decision. And I had gotten an internship with a law firm here in New York City. Oh, wow. And I spent a summer, a little more than a summer, um, shadowing a construction attorney. Ah. So got to see the full um, inner workings of a law firm which was enough for me to realize <laughs> that that also was not not the path for me. Okay. So it actually, it was a good experience because it did help me sort of focus on the, the pieces of the industry that I really liked. Okay. Um, which which is how I ended up at Gardner and Theobald. Got it. Okay. So, so but but at that law firm, so you were, it was specifically you were going for construction law kind of thing? Yeah. Real estate and construction okay. law. That's Interesting. Right. And so did you have any interaction with contractors or in the, in the industry at that point? Not through that law firm. It was okay. more of discovery, okay. know, a lot of contract review and okay. you know, looking for evidence. And I wonder and, you're good at that stuff. And, and, so, <laughs> you know, you know what you're looking at more so than, than most. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Makes you an even better project manager. Yeah. And what's interesting is, is that, you know, a, a big part of what we do is reviewing contracts. You know, every, every time we onboard yeah. and we start a new a new um, project, we're we're reviewing contracts for the full consultant team construction. So yeah, I'm sure, yeah. I'm sure, even lease review stuff like that. I'm sure you're doing That's as well. Right. So, um, so before we get into G and T, I know you're a big time skier, right? How, how did how did that happen? <laughs> Being like the boat guy from Maine. Yeah, <laughs> I. I I would say that uh, it's a relatively. I, I, grew, I when I grew up, I skied a lot, um, high school and just after high school, and then I took like a ten-year hiatus, and then um, maybe five, six years ago, I started getting back into it. And it's like with anything, any any sport or hobby that I take up, I I, I go to full extreme with it. And so, um, yeah, I, I ski quite a bit, mostly okay. mostly out west. Yeah. What what other hobbies do you have? Uh, boating and fishing. Okay. I started, um, offshore fishing when I, when I first moved to New York city, I started spending some time out on really? Long Island again and, okay. um, 
got a boat, got my captain's license. Oh, cool. And um, started spending my weekends offshore tuna fishing. Oh, well, that, you go way out for that, right? That's right. Yeah. See, I can't do that. <laughs> I, I can't survive like those those tours around the Statue of Liberty in New York City. Right. I, I'm so nauseous during that. It's It's horrible. <laughs> yeah it's a an acquired taste yeah i'm sure that that's crazy too and you have to spend nights out there we did yeah most of the time we'd we'd spend it overnight wow that's yep. insane so but, so getting into g and t so what kind of brings you to to gardner and theobald so while i was at the law firm i started thinking about well what am i going to do next i'm here in new york city I, my internship had wrapped up. I actually overstayed my internship. Um, and I thought, well, let me start looking for jobs in the city. And the, what I really wanted was a, a job either with a developer or with a project management company where I could focus on the, like the full range of, of, uh, the, the project. So um, from initial site selection through execution. Right. Um, and because I had experience in, in all aspects of it. So sure. I, I knew design, knew the construction. Um, so I started looking and I was really through an internet search that I found Gardner and Theobald. Really? <laughs> I actually found Gardner and Theobald um, LLP, which is UK. Okay. Um, New York didn't have a website at the time. Interesting. So I had reached out to them, cold called, sent my resume. They connected me with the New York office. And I think within a few days, um, I had interviewed and had an offer. I was interviewing at other places. I had I had uh, interviewed at some engineering firms and construction management firms. Okay. Um, but this this seemed like a really good fit. Did you have an understanding of what project management meant at the time, or was it just because you you do it touched on all aspects? I thought I did. I thought okay. I I thought I knew what. Were you right? What? <laughs> uh, partly, I think. Okay. The the extent of which um, we're involved in a project, I, I don't think I fully appreciated. Got it. Okay. Interesting. So when you get to G and T, now you've been there for sixteen years. That's right. um, how many people were in the New York office? I believe I was number 16 when I started. Oh, wow. Okay. So it was a relatively small office. Uh, all of the partners um, that were, that everybody knows were right. there. And so, <laughs> um, so it was great because I had a lot of exposure to the principals in the company. We all worked together, very hands-on. Okay. Okay. And so, uh, how many people are they now in, in New York? In New York, I think we're around 120. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So it's a big office now. Yeah. It's, it's definitely, yeah. it's definitely grown over the years. That's funny. Do, so how did the New York Gardner and Theobald office get started? Do you know? I do. Yeah. Andrew Mann, who's the, who founded the New York office. Right. Uh, he moved to, he moved to the U S actually in to Atlanta um, in 1992. Okay. And within a year had relocated from Atlanta up to New York and had opened the office. Okay. And everybody, everyone in the PM world takes credit for, um, quantity surveying, <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like G and T is actually the original quantity surveying. Is that true? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I mean, there were, 
there were others, at least when I started, there were others that were claiming to provide quantity surveying in New York, but I think um, nobody to the extent that we were. Okay. And when I say that, I mean that uh, we were not providing quantity surveying as they do in the UK, but we were providing a cost management service. Right. Um, that was was different than what everyone else was doing. Okay. How does what's what exactly is different from cost management to quantity surveying? Is there really a difference, or it's just there the, is? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so the <laughs> and I'll probably get this wrong. Okay. I'm that's, that's not, right. not a QS, but uh, <laughs> in the UK, um, quantity surveyors prepare bills of quantities. Okay. And so that's really the origin of the name, and so they're measuring every brick and mortar joint and lengths of copper or whatever so that they, they prepare these bills of quantities on uh off of a drawing set which is then used to bid and build the project okay it's not done in the u.s and uh it's not done i think because one it's labor intensive but the construction market doesn't doesn't embrace it so it's it's not Got something it. that is um so that's interesting so I, I never knew that i just assumed it was the same thing as like a cost estimate so they're actually providing what the contract the the basis for the contractor that's right wow yeah that would never go over here especially in new york there's no way <laughs> never we occasionally we'll get a, a uk-based client that will will ask us to do bills of quantities and we're like it's not we're not doing it you don't need it <laughs> right yeah yeah because we'll do the you know you guys do a cost estimate which is obviously great as we talked about there in the beginning we'll get into it in a little bit but you know architects don't know cost as much as we pretend to know cost so it is nice to have you guys come yeah. in and say hey this is generally what it's going to cost and then you know a lot of times it's it's pretty darn accurate when the mm -hmm. contractor bids it and a lot of times who knows the contractor is it's all over the place right it can That's right. it can be a total crapshoot at that point yeah. but at least it's a starting point. Yeah, and 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 for me, I'm not critical of architects for not knowing cost. Yeah, I, no, I, I get don't. It. Yeah. I don't. Uh, <laughs> I I think that it's it's probably you know there's there's so much that goes into a cost estimate to expect an architect who has so many other responsibilities to also know all the different factors that go into a budget. Um, at least, for in my opinion, it would be unfair. Yeah, we've gotten in. We've gotten good at saying things like the material costs this, right? That's right. <laughs> and then we'll always say, well, the labor and everything else associated with it, trucking, whatever that we have no idea what that is. Right. We, but the labor, as far as the actual piece of carpet, this is how much it costs. Right. <laughs> yeah, and we like to to build a cost model up front and and then give that model to the architect before the design really even gets started so that we have a basis to sort of guide what those material selections are right so if you know the material costs then that's enough for us to know that we're tracking on budget got it okay that makes sense uh what other locations does gnt have i know that they're kind of around the globe now so we have our uk operations um but in the us we're new york miami san diego LA, San Francisco. Okay. We have somebody in Portland as well. And do you guys see a difference in those offices in terms of acceptance of project management? I know in New York, it's very well accepted, you know, project manager. And then we'll talk about this in a bit, but you know, we, us here at Mancini, we like a project manager associated with the job because of the, the sort of the pressure it takes off of us. Uh, but do you see that, is it different in other cities or? The markets that we're in are embracing it okay. they're not they don't fully embrace it particularly the cost management component of it okay um as it is in new york but it's probably new york 
you know, five years ago. So it's, it's okay. quickly catching up. And we do work in a lot of other markets, other major cities where the the project and cost management industry is 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 pretty far behind. Interesting. Okay. I could see that. So when you so at GNT there's a lot of architects and engineers. In terms of hiring, do you do you seek that out? Is there a specific type of person that you're looking for when you're looking for project managers? Yes, a lot of uh, a lot of our project managers do have technical backgrounds, so they're architects, engineers, or have a construction management background. Okay. Um, architects do make great project managers, and I would say the the majority of the PMs that we have do have some background in architecture. Um, I think the detail orientedness of an architect, the um, the technical background. Yeah, understanding of you know sort of every aspect of the project makes a makes a good good project manager. Yeah, no, I agree, and and I I always I do enjoy when there's a former architect. Usually, when we're working with someone, especially from your team, they'll they'll basically right at day one announce like I am an architect, <laughs> and so this way we know okay, good, we this is like someone we can relate to, and everything's gonna be fine, and we we're talking the same language, and again, it takes the pressure off, which is which is kind of nice for us. So. Yeah, there's there's someone in our office who likes to to use the term "I'm a recovering architect," yeah. which I really like. <laughs> uh, please don't steal anybody here. You know? <laughs> um, so, what is your role at GNT? And then, I guess specifically, how did you get into the world of the hospitality, which is kind of how I, I know you do other kinds of work, sure. but but I know that's your primary sector. I'm a senior director, so I have a, a team of project and cost managers. Um, yeah, and as you mentioned, I, we do a lot of hospitality work in, in my team, but um, we also do uh, a lot of other project types. I think hospitality is, is something that I've, I personally have always been drawn to and, and seek out. Right. Um, but how did I get into it? I would say the... The very first two projects that I worked on when I joined GNT were two restaurants, um, which you may know, Morimoto and Budokan. Sure. Both at Chelsea Market. Yep. Um, I, I started on those projects, and that was really my first exposure to New York City construction. So wow. it was. Um, those are intense projects. Those too. were intense projects. They were a good entry into the market because it definitely gave me exposure to that whole hospitality industry. And then any time after that new hospitality work came in, I had already had that exposure. So the work started, you know, being pushed my way. And also thinking about this, like I'm thinking about our restaurant clients, cause we have, we're doing a ton of restaurants right now and all of our restaurant clients are intense, right? Every little thing, every little detail, which are you, obviously would totally get. I mean, these aren't TGI Fridays. They're they're real brand restaurants and high end. And so down to the, you know, the light levels to every little experience to can you see inside a kitchen from a certain table or not? And how do we block those views? And I can see you're you're very laid back. And so you have a very calming way about you. So I can see why that works well for your, you know, sort of the complement of those intense individuals. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, you are 100% accurate in terms of the intensity of a restaurateur or anyone in the hospitality industry. It is a very high energy 
detail oriented um, project type. And, and yeah, I, did, I learned pretty early on in my career that um, matching that intensity with my, <laughs> was, was not going to work for me. Right. <laughs> And wouldn't benefit the project, so yeah, I I think my personality does um, does work work well with those. I can see that. Yeah, knowing some of those guys and and gals, it's definitely a uh, <laughs> it, yeah, it's a good mix for sure. So so I had I had Kevin Gold from VVA on here, and you both have very similar personalities, but you know your approach is different uh, as far as like when you attack projects and how you do it. Um, so what makes G and T stand out from the other competition? I would say our cost management approach to a project is what differentiates us between the, the, the competition. Okay. We have a, a huge emphasis on cost management. Um, and we, we have just as many cost managers as we do project managers. And so every project is assigned a team that includes project management and cost management. Um, and they're assigned to that project from inception through closeout. Um, and we start with budgeting. So every project that we start, we, we start building a conceptual cost estimate almost day one okay. and have a, have a, an emphasis on how we approach cost, um, the procurement, the design, it's all cost driven. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And I, I would say you guys are very consistent in terms of your teams, especially your, your particular team when it comes to, uh, hospitality, you know, it's like we deal with the same, the same crew every time, which is kind of nice. So we all now have a rapport with one another and you kind of know what you're going to get as far as costs as they come back to us. And I do have another question as it relates to architects and costs. As far as architects and, and costs go, a lot of times you, you have sort of a line item in your budget for an architect's fee and an engineer's fee. How do you guys arrive at that? I'm always curious because it's been pretty, pretty darn close to kind of how we, um, kind of the fee that we end up with depending upon the scope. But uh, how do you guys budget for that kind of thing? Sure. It's a, I would say it's a combination of benchmark data from previous project experience and having an understanding of the parameters of the project. So if we know the type of project it's going to be, the budget, we can then start to understand what architects we are going to include on our RFP list. And then we know, you know, roughly how to, how to budget because we know the type of project, the, the scale, the level of finish and the bidder pool that we're going to. So we have so much benchmark data internally that we can pretty accurately okay. um, develop. A that makes sense data. because the, but your projects in particular on the hospitality side are way more difficult to predict the fee, right? It's not like a corporate interiors job where there's, okay, the architect is usually whatever, 350 to 550 a foot or something like that, right? Depending upon the level of finish yours, because a lot of times the, the projects are smaller, but they're more intense. The level of detail is more intense. I'm always impressed when, you know, it's like, oh, we're, we're, we're pretty close to budget. You know, we, this is kind of where you expected us to come in. So it's a, it's a tough, I could see that being a tough thing to call. It is tough, but the it's it comes down to volume, and we have such a, a, a large volume of work that comes through our business that we we have a lot of those um, comparable projects. We can always take um, a new project and compare it in some way to to a previous. Okay, cool, 
Cool. I love the architecture profession. There are so many wonderful people, so many interesting, innovative, and smart folks. And we get access to people that most never even have an opportunity to meet in person. I have worked with Bob Iger, CEO of Disney, Jamie Dimon, CEO of JPMorgan Chase, John Foley, founder of Peloton, and many more legends. There is another aspect of architects that fascinates me. How do clients view us? How do they work with us? Those that work with architects either have a wonderful experience or a pretty bad one. Let's continue to listen to the lessons they've learned. And now back to the episode. All right, so part of what we do here uh, is take a critical look at how architects work with their clients, or in your case, PMs. Mm -hmm. Um, I always think a good PM uh, or owner's rep is a critical uh, part of the project. And I think, as I said earlier, if done well, you take a lot of the pressure off of us. So things like contracts, you know, collections, we're really not good at asking for additional money. Um, and you guys are a lot of times an advocate for us in that respect. I mean, you push back too, which I get. Sure. Um, but, but that's, you know, those are all things that, you know, we at Mancini embrace a project management firm for. And I think it's because we're realistic. We know like, oh, we're, we're, we're really not good at that. So, um, tell us why, you know, architects should embrace a firm like yours. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, our approach to project management is always to be fair and reasonable with our clients' money and with the consultant and construction team. So we're almost an advocate for everyone on the project, not just for the owner. So we're, we're you know, it, we can be a mediator between the, an architect and an owner when it comes to a fee negotiation because we can we can support um the architect we, we can have a conversation with the owner and say this work was outside of the contract it's fair and reasonable and and actually help to have those those conversations and get those fee proposals um approved right right what in your mind is the difference between an owner's rep and a project manager <laughs> <laughs> i think they're the, the two terms are used interchangeably i think uh they're, I, I think they're they're synonymous. Okay, okay. The first time I heard anyone argue that point was actually a project that you and I were on, which was that David Adaje project. Sure. And I heard the people from Adaje's office say, well, are you the owner's rep or are you the project manager? And I thought, huh, <laughs> never really thought about it. There's a difference between the two, but I guess that there is, so. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you'll see, I mean, if we're talking contracts, the owner's representative in a con- in an AIA contract is a, is a representative of the owner, so it's right. a designated representative. Right. So in you our can make industry, decisions for the owner essentially. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Okay. Yeah. But in our industry, um, the the two the two terms are used um, interchangeably. Okay. Got it. So, how can architects help you all do your job better? It's a interesting question. I think. Um, what we do as project managers is we try to, at the onset of the project, put a structure in place. We build a schedule, we build a budget, and we try to manage the the team, the consultant team, and the construction team to stay within those parameters. 
I think the the way that architects and consultants can help ensure the success of a project is to stay within those parameters. I think, you know, maintaining the design schedule, maintaining <laughs> the project budget. Um, and, and, you know, we understand that things change and owner owners make requests, um, the designs change, parameters change. But whenever we deviate from a, a project schedule even a little bit, it, it sort of sets um, the wheels in motion for things to, to begin to unravel. Yeah, yeah, I can see that for sure. Or at least, you know, try to try to warn you that we're off, we're off schedule and rather than keeping quiet about it. That's right. You know, until the very end, you know. Oh, That's yeah, right. by the way, we're not going to make that deadline. <laughs> <laughs> that does happen occasionally. <laughs> yes, I'm sure it does. <laughs> not with you. Not with your No, phone. thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, so this is one of my favorite things to ask, you know, project manager is, so you have a hand in selecting the architect. Um, can you give us kind of an inside look at what goes on at G&T, you know, about that process? Sure. The, the architect selection uh, is is probably the most tricky of the of the consultant team selections. First, many owners um, or clients have opinions on which architects they they would want to include on a bid list or who they want to work with. Right. And oftentimes, that decision is actually made before we're even on board. Sure. <laughs> um, it's the one it's the one um, consultant that the that owners usually have an opinion about. Um, but putting that aside, if we're starting from scratch and there is no opinions, um, you know, we look at the project type and we, you know, we look at our, our internal database of what similar projects, what architects have worked on them, what architects we've had good experiences with lately, whose fees have been reasonable. <laughs> um, and, and that's really how that initial list is put together. And then the actual selection process um, is is a uh, is a formal RFP process, solic solicitation of proposals, interviews, leveling, and again the arc the architect selection is is largely driven by the owners, and that's the one interview that they always want to sit in on. They yep. want to have a say. So I think um, the actual selection is is a is a conversation with the uh, with the owners, and it's and it's not always the the low the low bid. It's sure. it's oftentimes not. Yeah. What do you think makes you know the client select one over another? It's it really comes down to the to the interview. It does. Okay. Yeah. I, if if you've made it to the list, if you've made it to the table, you've already demonstrated that you have the experience to to work on the project and oftentimes it's the the team that's put forward um how the presentation goes and that that can often be the deciding factor between between two competitors like a chemistry in the presentation or, or i guess like what what i guess what presentations have you been part of that kind of stand out in your head as being you know exceptional presentations you know, that have gone beyond, I think we talk about this all the time here, yeah. right? Same thing. All right, we got to the table, we got selected down further. Clearly they know we can do the work. What is it that we can do now to kind of close the deal and show them like we're the real deal? It is a lot about the energy of the team that's presenting. It's um, it's the, the connection with the owner. It's the demonstration that they, that, you know, you understand the project. 
Um, I would say where I where I've seen architects lose projects where they may have been involved in due diligence or have done initial studies up front, and then when it comes to the interview, they're complacent. So they come in, they be like, "Well, we already know this project better than anybody." And they don't put that sort of effort forward in an excitement um, about you know demonstrating that they really want the work and that they're going to put the best team on it. Um, even talking through their previous experience and talking, you know, I, the clients need a reminder of all those cool projects that you right. that you've worked on in the past and different clients you've worked with. Yeah, even if it's just kind of a quick thing. Yeah, hey, remember us? These are all the cool things we did. Yeah. Do so, you do you like to see when I assume clients would when architects put in a little bit of work into the presentation? So, you know, they go ahead and l let's say it's a hotel lobby or something and they do some concepts for it. Does that go a long way? It does. It does. It, does. Okay. it, it all depends on the client type, but and, and what the client expectations are. So it could, it could backfire if you yeah. develop something that the client hates then they'll have a hard time, you know, <laughs> getting away from that. Um, and then it, then it becomes, it gets put on us to have to explain, well, that was just one, <laughs> it was just one concept. They have the ability to do other things. But I think if, if I think about like a, a ground up type project where if an architect may come in and, 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 do a review of the zoning and the massing and come with some sketches about, you know, here's what the building may look like. Yeah. You thought through the square footages and the most efficient use and the setbacks and all the things that go like that, that, that never fails because it, it shows interest, um, in, in the project and that you've already, like, you, you understand it better than the next person. Yeah, that's helpful. I, I agree with that. That's a good one on the on the building side for sure. And then, yeah, when you're if you do take it, we talk about this here, too, when we have a big presentation and we put in the effort, you know, we are taking a point of view and we do have to suffer the consequences if we've taken that point of view and it's 100 percent wrong. Right. It's not what the client was thinking, but we always chalk it up as, hey, well, at least we gave it a shot. We we took a stab at it. And yes, if we could backpedal, that'd be great, because the reality is we're we don't know the client could like neoclassical architecture and we're showing them something super modern right that's right yeah so but it's um you know a point of view is a, is a good thing to have some of the star architects i know that you work with they can get away with that right they come in and they're like hey this is a, you just hired me this is what i do they can <laughs> yeah they, they often don't have to <laughs> go through the interview processes <laughs> sometimes it's them interviewing us deciding whether they want to take our project <laughs> that's crazy what 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 are some of the star architects you've worked with uh well, Ando, oh, early nice. in my career with Morimoto. Okay. Uh, Christian Liagra. Uh, we're currently working with Tony Chi. I've done a couple of projects with him now. Very cool. Um, Philippe Stark. Oh, cool. That's great. Ajay uh, or Adaje. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the project that never happened. The project that never happened. Yeah. Yeah. It's too bad. It was a cool project. It was. Yes. <laughs> Out in Montauk, they get stuck with some giant houses instead. So, you know, our project would have been better. It would have been way cooler. <laughs> uh, so, um, you know, you've worked on thousands of projects, obviously. Um, just quickly, just tell me, you know, your honest experience with architects. You know, what do they do right? What do they do wrong? We talked a little bit about cost. Um, just a couple of you know ideas about that. What do they do right? I think they do a lot right. And I think uh, 
the architects that we work with um, are typically of a caliber of your, you know, you're getting the best in the industry. Um, the projects that we do are of, you know, demand those those level of um, that, that skill set. So I think the what they do right is is easy. Like they we we work on some amazing projects, and the skyline is full here in New York <laughs> City of some really incredible buildings and incredible projects. Um, the things that I think can be improved is is probably the the process in in which the design is developed, and I, and I think this is probably something that's um, what's actually driven you to to yeah. sort of start this. This that was podcast. my next question. <laughs> <laughs> was um, was the is to figure out like how to how to improve the the actual design development process. Yeah. It's it's time consuming. The coordination is still not great. Um, I think the use of of BIM is not is not you know been fully embraced yet in New York City, both by the consultants but also by the construction industry. So I, th- I think there's. There's certainly room for improvement um, in the in the process in which the, the design and the drawings are developed. Yeah, I agree. And then obviously, and then wh- where where do you see technology helping in that process? So the the, the drawings, if if you, if you think about a renovation of a building, um, your drawings are only as good as your backgrounds, and your backgrounds are only as good as the survey data that you've developed them off of. And you know, we have the technology now to go in and, and scan yeah. a space and understand, you know, every nut and bolt. But we often don't have the luxury to have a space demolished um, before it's scanned. So, again, you know, we, we'll go in and, we, and have a scan done. And by the time the backgrounds are developed and then we demo drawings, we go and demo and we have to sort of start over again because yeah, there's yeah. things that Make are behind the walls, above the ceilings. Um, but also even the 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 taking the scan from um, that sort of point cloud to a background is labor intensive. It's yeah. expensive. It's time consuming. And I think if the, the process up front of due diligence can be streamlined if the cost of that scanning can be you know eventually you know pushed down to where it's it's sort of the industry standard on every project i think then you you start your starting point is is going to be better you're going to have better better drawings better backgrounds from the onset of the project yeah we we've started to you know sort of self scan um, we've we've developed our own you know scanner system. It's actually on our Roomba, the 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 vacuum cleaner, mm-hmm. so it can kind of move around a site uh, without having to move a tripod around. And we're experimenting with that. We're trying to do that so the same thing, right? So that we can take the upfront cost down because it only benefits the architect to have accurate drawings from the very beginning, right? To to throw up your That's hands right. and go, hey, it's too expensive. I can't do that. That's just going to come and and bite you in the end um, if if That's you're right. not accurate from the beginning. So. Yeah, we're we've we're working on a hotel project where we didn't have access to all the guest rooms, so we relied on you know as built information and <laughs> the as built information that the the drawing set was developed on was 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 very wrong, and we were dealing with very um, small tolerances for millwork and furniture and 
finishes and um it turned out to be you know a fairly significant impact to both schedule and budget once we we were able to get access to the rooms and begin demolition i'm sure especially in hotel rooms it's yeah. like a fine watch when it's all said and done so so uh bringing it all back around uh if you had to do anything differently as far as your career is concerned what might you have changed <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I think my answer is going to be easy, though. I mean, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change anything. Okay. I think the, I, I did due diligence up front, and, and I looked at other avenues, you did. and I, th <laughs> this has been a very good fit for me. Awesome. And I feel like I, you know, I had a lot of opportunities over the last sixteen years to pivot, to make a change, to you know, go into development, other aspects of our business. Um, but I I chose to to stick it out with with G and T and it's been it's been great. That's great, awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here and being the guest here on the Anti Architect Podcast. Um, to see and read more about Chris, uh, it's hard to find uh, stuff about him online. He's a pretty <laughs> private guy, uh, but you can certainly go to uh, the Gardner and Theobald website, which is just gardner.com, right? That's right. G a r d i n e r dot com. So. Chris, seriously, thank you so much for being here. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Awesome.